0: my name is john becker host of the debrief podcast and the founder of aardvark tactical this is a new short form podcast series from the debrief in each episode we will discuss a single aspect of leadership in depth with subject matter experts who operate in high stress environments inside and outside of the tactical community the goal of this series is to give you direct access to the men and women whose leadership skills have been tested in the world's most dangerous situations and to provide you with specific, actionable information that you can use to hone your leadership skills. This is Battle Proven Leadership. Welcome to this Battle Proven Leadership episode of The Debrief. My guest today is Bob Koontz. Bob is the founder of High Reliability Group, which he created after serving 20 years in the United States Navy. Bob's distinguished naval career included serving on five different nuclear fast-attack submarines and culminated with him being given command of the USS Key West, a $2 billion nuclear-powered Los Angeles-class fast-attack submarine. Following his retirement from the Navy, Bob has worked in a variety of leadership roles, primarily in the energy industry, where he has led business development, project management, and consulting efforts for large and small companies. Bob is an expert in the leadership of high-reliability organizations and a co-author of the book Extreme Operational Excellence, which focuses on the culture of the United States nuclear submarine force. Our conversation today focuses on utilizing specific techniques he learned in the nuclear submarine community to drive the culture of high-reliability organizations. Bob, thanks so much for
1: being here with me. Hey, John. Glad to be here.
0: So, why don't we start with... The culture of a nuclear submarine, because I think I think that that is a foundation for our conversation today. what whats it is, what is it that is so unique about the culture of a nuclear submarine?
1: Yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's a pretty interesting environment for sure. And uh, you know, if you look back on the history of the submarine force, when we first built nuclear submarines back in the uh, early early 1950s uh, with the USS Nautilus in 1954. Uh, the guy in charge named Admiral Hyman Rickover, you know, he realized that he couldn't have kind of the, the standard old school military concept, which was kind of top down, do as you're told, don't question authority, you know, just follow procedures without thinking kind of mentality. And he really created a culture that, that we see today after, you know, 70 years of operations. that's very really focused on understanding your equipment, your systems being very formal in procedures and communications. But then we have this element called questioning attitude and watch team backup, and sometimes called forceful watch team backup. And what we mean by that is we, we imbue these young people straight out of high school or straight out of college with all this book learning. And we tell them, follow procedures, be very formal. But then we say, and now question everything. Question your commanding officer, because he might make a mistake. Question your executive officer, she might make a mistake. Question the procedure, it could be wrong. Question the equipment, it could be operating incorrectly. So you're constantly told to question everything around you because something's trying to kill you. You're in a submarine, 800 feet underneath the ocean. The pressure is pushing on you. You're operating a nuclear reactor. You have torpedoes, Tomahawk missiles. Something's trying to get at you, and you have to always be ready to fight whatever that is. So that questioning attitude is critical. But we can't have anarchy also. So all those things have to work kind of in harmony with a bunch of people who are in a pressure cooker in pretty stressful situations. And so, you know, somehow we're able to fuse all those, you know, kind of formality with questioning attitude and forceful watch team backup all together and have a pretty strong track record for not only getting the mission done, but also safety when you look at the history of the nuclear submarine force.
0: Yeah, I mean, the parallels between what you did and what our average listener does, you know, our, are, are, are... So many of our clients and our listeners are are, you know, conducting hostage rescues. They're conducting high risk military operations. Uh, they are in zero failure environments, and and that was part of the reason I wanted to sit down with you. Is, you know, it's it's you say you know something is trying to kill you. Like in in a nuclear submarine, it seems like everything is constantly trying to kill you. Uh, and so you know when I first read um, your work and and saw you, I, I said this this is an interesting conversation because. I think that there are a lot of parallels between what you did and, and what our listener does. But also, I think that the way that you have constructed culture or, or even destruct, you know deconstructed culture and looked at um, why that culture exists and, and what underlies it is, is really valuable for, for any leader, right? you know a law enforcement or military guy, but even a business leader, understanding high reliability organization, um, I think is really important talk to me about what, what underlies the culture? Like, give me, give me kind of Bob's, um, you know, initial thoughts on, on how do I create that culture in my organization? Like, where, where do you start with a, with a nuclear submarine?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. When we go into our clients, you know, it's all about how do you get that culture? You know, how do you build that? The, The nuclear submarine force has been kind of a bottom up, you know, take in young people and, and it's a closed off culture. So it's a lot easier when we work with our clients and they've got you know people coming in at senior levels and trying to build that culture is a lot more challenging. But what we teach uh, is that the feedback mechanisms between the culture you want, the management system that you're operating by. So all the policies, the standards, the procedures, that's an important link. And then you have to have these feedback mechanisms, these loops that go between the culture, the leadership, and the management system. And without those feedbacks, you don't fix anything. So maybe you have a procedure that's wrong or you have a standard or a policy that's not working well out in the field, but you don't know that back in the headquarters because no feedback mechanism is in place. And we teach people that you're going to shape the culture out in the field, whether that's a refinery, offshore oil rig, West Texas fracking, whatever you're doing, you're shaping the culture through the leadership's engagement with the operators but also the procedures that you write and the policies that you write to say, hey, we're going to work like this across all of our operations. We're going to have one policy, and it's got to be flexible so that we can recognize when it doesn't work. We want that questioning attitude, but we also want to say, this is how we'd get business done. This is the right way to do it. You walk on any submarine in the entire U.S. Navy, and within, you know, 5% of things, they're going to do business the same way. They're following the same set of procedures, the same policies, there may be some personality differences, but it's pretty much the same culture on that. And that's pretty important. And, you know, there's several mechanisms that we did. Uh, we, you know, we followed in order to get that. One of them was I led, one of my jobs was actually a team that did inspections on nuclear aircraft carriers and submarines. And I would fly a team in and we would spend three days and we would look at their administration. Their, we interview them for a level of knowledge. We'd look at their maintenance And then we'd watch them actually run what we call drills, which was, you know, simulated incidents and things and see how they handled themselves. And we'd provide that feedback directly to them. And that would go all the way up the chain of command to make sure that every submarine was following, you know, the right set of standards. So you really have to hone in on that culture. And and John, the the reason I don't think we've talked about this, but, you know, the reason I started the whole company uh, looking back was in 2005, USS Philadelphia had a collision. She was a Los Angeles-class submarine. She had a collision uh, in the Persian Gulf. And I got sent over to be the executive officer, second in command. I had just completed an executive officer tour, and they needed somebody experienced to go in there. Uh, and in that, there's a whole long story that goes with that. We don't have time for it today. But they fired the captain, the executive officer, and the chief engineer all at once. Cut the head oh, off. Boy. Yeah, so the whole team. And you and had these 135 or 40 Kids, let's call them, average age is 23 or 24. They'd just gotten hit by a 30,000-ton Turkish freighter. They fired their captain. They loved the guy. They fired the XO. They didn't really love that guy. They, they fired the engineer. And I had to go in there with a, a captain and a, a chief engineer, and we had to take that team and, and rebuild the culture. And it was a long saga. So it's really important to build the right culture, to know what culture you want, and establish the policies and procedures that support that, along with the feedback loops. Is that?
0: So as, as, you're, as you're describing that, and we had an earlier conversation about this, I'm picturing kind of a feedback loop like like John Boyd's OODA loop.
1: Right, exactly. You know, it, so,
0: so it, and that's talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, so there's m- multiple ways and, and things you should do, and you should do them all or as many as you can. One might just be the old management by walking around. As commanding officer, every day on the submarine, I walked the entire submarine. I would talk to the most junior sailor I could find and I'd spend enough time with him to make him comfortable to tell me what's going on in his life. You know, is he using, does he have the right tools? Does he have the right training? Does he have the right procedures? We didn't even get into like personal things. How is life's going? Because it can be quite a distraction if your life's not going good. So that's one simple way. We also had very prescribed observations. You know, every week as captain, I would go back and watch maintenance on the nuclear reactor. I would watch the technicians and I would give them feedback And then I would look at our policies and our training and talk to my executive officer and say, you know, this is what I saw, and here's some things I have questions about, and here's some things we need to work on. And every officer did that in the whole submarine. So those are just two mechanisms. I mentioned the audit team or the inspection team. That's an outside group coming in. And then we had staff support. So all these kind of observations, audits, assurance practices were all part of the feedback mechanism. Uh, but it's all about leadership and, and really understanding, you know, what's going on in your team in your organization. With your eyes on target, you know, not just accepting the reports that you're getting or just reacting to whatever negative information comes back. You go out and see with yourself, your own eyes, your own ears.
0: What are some of the the strategies or tactics that you employed to to create that culture?
1: Yeah. You mentioned the OODA loop. We're kind of, we're big fans of it, even though we don't really specifically call it out all the time, but we, we truly embrace that framework because it's a powerful framework. Um, and so, you know, for those that are not familiar that it's, you know, it's observe, orient, decide, and act, and it has a feedback mechanism already built into it. Um, but we recognize on submarines that if we don't build the mental models of these young sailors who don't have, they don't have decades of experience, right? They have a couple years of experience, maybe. Sometimes just months. So we have to build those mental models. So one thing we did a lot was tabletop exercises. Now these are you know, very simple. Just sit down with a scenario. You know, get, here's the submarine. Here's what's going on. Here's the indications you have. Um, here's a problem. You know, this electrical equipment just broke, and you know I can't go into the details. It's all classified. But this broke, and what are you going to do about it? And in real time, they react. This is sitting around a table. It's not actually doing it. And these table type exercises, we did them for we did them for the engineering plant, we did them for the tactical forward plant, the navigation, and the whole concept, just like using a simulator, but there's zero costs when you do it just on a tabletop, is to build these mental models to see how they react and then give them real time coaching, mentoring, and training. And we found that it's powerful with our clients because you know, we go into a lot of oil and gas clients and they think that they have pretty solid, you know, understanding of their team's capabilities. But I've talked to operators at refineries that have gone 10 years without any plant trip or any kind of incident happened to them. And I just, you know, I challenge them a little bit about what is your, you know, me, what's your muscle memory going to be, you know, when you actually have to react in real time. And And so we work with them to build some tabletop exercises to allow them to focus on that that, you know, mental model so that if something were to happen, you, you can stop it early, you know, before it gets out of control. If You look at all the major incidents uh, in the industry, there were indicators, there were red flags popping up all over, but people convinced themselves it was okay or they didn't recognize the red flag. I mean, Texas, you look at Texas City refinery explosion in 2005, or you look at uh, Macondo, Deepwater Horizon, those are just a couple examples and those red flags were there, John. It's just, you know, they allowed themselves to kind of get in a group think. They weren't challenging, their, you know, with a questioning authority. And and I believe tabletop exercise is one of those things that anybody can do at any time. It's simple, doesn't cost anything. You don't have to have expensive equipment. You can you can get all the trainers, great. But if you can't afford all that, just say, hey, here's the situation. What would you do?
0: Yeah, it's funny. We we did an episode um, at first in the first season about decision-making exercises. And uh, it was a couple of guys from the California Association of Tactical Officers uh, during COVID, you know, were we're asking themselves, how do we continue training? How do we continue teaching, even though we're all wearing masks and hiding in caves? uh, How do we get out and and actually do this? And they came up with this idea of doing, you know, tactical exercises without troops, as the Marine Corps would call them, or tabletops. And the idea was, you know, you arrive at a scene. Here's the information you have. What do you want? What do you want to do? Okay, now this information has changed. Here's this. And you run that three times. And then what they were doing is they're all based on real events.
1: Right.
0: And they would go back then and say, here's the guy that went through that event, debriefing what happened. And we, fortunately, one of the guys, Josh Wofford, was, you know, was in the middle of getting an EDD in in education and – Showed the rest of the world, like, this is what you're actually learning and why. But what we realized very early on in watching these DMEs is when you go through an exercise like that, when you go through a tabletop exercise, you are, especially if you are having to react on the fly in front of your command staff or in front of other people, you're living the event. Right. You're living it with less stress. I mean, obviously, on a nuclear reactor, like, hey, something's going sideways means potentially everybody could die. But that's also true in a tactical operation. Yeah. And so it's it it you know it, it builds those paradigms and it lays a foundation that then when the event happens, you've already run that exactly. and there there's already neural circuitry for it exactly. So it strikes me that that's a that's a great idea. How do we take the lessons we learn in, in tabletops, and turn them into, um, you know, for lack of a, ba- a better term, um, alarms or alerts that we can use in the field as leaders to know when things are really starting to go sideways. Yeah.
1: That, that, so we do something in the submarine force called tripwires. I'm sure it's a pretty common idea. You set a tripwire with your, your team. Let's say, uh, you know, I'm the captain and um, I don't want a other, I don't want another vessel within four nautical miles of my nuclear submarine without me knowing about it. That might be a tripwire. And I establish that tripwire. Um, you could use pressure on the nuclear reactor. You'd use temperature. Uh, you could use all kinds of, you know, whatever the data that you're having come into your sensors, whatever the, they might be. Um, but you want to, like, say, okay, if it gets above this level or below this level, or whatever your tripwire is, here's a pre planned response. And we're going to brief this pre planned response. And we're all going to know this is how we're going to react if this tripwire is met. And included in that is hey, call the boss that might be, don't call the boss first, take your action, but alert the boss if you have to, uh, I mean, after you take the action. So tripwires are very powerful. And, you know, again, we, we teach these to our clients because they don't, they, they, a lot of them have never thought about this, but if you tell a plant operator, hey, if you ever see pressure higher than 600 pounds per square inch gauge, you know, I want a phone call on that because we've been having some problems and, you know, so I'm going to set that as a tripwire. And it, it, it's really, what's interesting is it, it, it elevates the decision-making a little bit and it really, you know, when you leave an operator with any possible scenario that they have to think through, it's almost unfair to them. I don't want to do that to my operators. I want to say, here's the plant design. Here's how it's supposed to operate. And here's my biggest risk. And I'm going to set a tripwire so that you can tell me when you see a problem, I want to help you. I want to make sure you have the right. I know you're trained. I know you're experienced. You're there doing the job. But I also want to make sure you got the help you need if we hit one of those trip wires. And so I think it's incumbent on a leader not to leave the operator out in the field on their own without setting some of those parameters. And it's not babysitting, in my mind. It's actually helping them and enabling the team to support that operator. So that's how I look at it. And I think it's helpful uh, for others in high-risk, high-consequence environments to take that on.
0: So it's interesting. You know, there's a concept of immediate action drills. Yeah. In, in military units that if you know if somebody screams grenade everybody's on the ground yep. and we're not going to stop and go oh is it really a grenade what happened no that's the, you will immediately respond with x with y what i love about that cuz tripwires is kind of a slightly more elevated version of that right it's it's you know we're looking for certain signals and if if those signals occur we are taking this action right. and and there's there's a couple things i like about that one is you know those tripwires are there because if something is you know, if you hit a tripwire, you've already predetermined that that is significant right. and we need to take action. Yep. So we're not going to stand there and think about what to do. Right. Right. Uh, especially when we're in a stressful situation where thinking about what to do might cost everybody their lives. Yes. Exactly. And we are going to act and then we're going to think, uh, which which eliminates that, that you know, your vapor lock and, and kind of, you know, front sight focus that happens w- in, in a stressful situation. The second thing that I love about tripwires and I think is is interesting for every leader, and I try to do this in my own business, is we are very prone to incremental decision making.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: we're very prone to like, well, if the pressure gets to five hundred, then you know that, I'm going to do something. But then the pressure gets to five hundred, we're like, oh, yeah, nothing's really that bad. Maybe we'll wait till it gets to five fifty, mm-hmm. right? A- and and we make a series of incremental decisions that lead us. You know, into destruction, and and I've read a lot about airplane disasters, and and you know, there's there's a great book uh, called Meltdown that looks at a variety of different, you know, nukes being the obvious example, but it, there is always incremental decision making in play in in catastrophic events.
1: Yeah, just on a side note, so we also have and believe strongly in something called a technical authority. And what we mean by that is there are certain parameters, certain tripwires are set by the four-star admiral, the director of naval reactors. And he wrote them in a book and said, if you hit these, unless you're in battle and you're, you know, you're going to die. If you don't, you don't violate these without my permission. And so that's a technical th- technical authority tripwire. Again, if you look at some of the major disasters, whether it's Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Gulf of Mexico, you know, Deepwater Horizon, if they had a technical authority in place, they said, oh, we hit this tripwire, and it's not only the operational boss who feels the pressure of the schedule and the budget, it's the technical boss who's removed from that decision. When you think about the Challenger and NASA, you know, they had information about the O-rings in 1986, and they didn't have a technical authority in place to say, whoa, you know, it's not an operational decision anymore. It's now a technical decision, and we're going to elevate it. So they kind of go in, you know, kind of in in lockstep, but it elevates it outside the operational decision-making authority, and that's critical for some very high-risk things, you know, whether it's launching a space shuttle or it's, you know, operating a nuclear reactor outside of its design parameters, which, which we don't do, without you know being extreme case.
0: Well, and it's, you know, Challenger is a very good example because I remember, you know, watching the Challenger hearings. The I mean, Challenger happened. I was just turning 18 years old. And, like, that was a significant emotional event for the entire United States, probably for the world. And and I remember watching the hearings and seeing Feynman, you know, asking questions about the O rings and then pulling an O ring out of a frozen glass of water and saying, Boy, it sure feels rigid to me. And there was this moment where you're like, These guys are idiots. He just made them look like complete idiots. And you could see how, incremental decision creeped in and nobody really wanted to be the guy to push the big red button exactly yep. and so nobody did and and what i like about what you're saying is nobody's going to push the button the button's going to push itself when we get to here the button pushes itself and we don't have the authority to change our mind exactly we can't we can't make an incremental decision um i th- i think that's fantastic how do you like inside the submarine corps, how do you apply lessons learned? How do you apply like, you know, I always I always say that, you know, any near miss is a cautionary tale. And we are very inclined to look at near misses and say, well, that's not that big a deal. Like, oh yeah, boy, we got lucky on that one. Um, and the difference between, you know, a a, you know, a near miss and a fatality is sometimes the aim of the suspect and nothing more, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, how do you take those lessons culturally and make sure that they are reinforced and make sure that they drive change?
1: Yeah. If you hang out with submariners long enough, you find out that we love to beat ourselves up over every little mistake that we make. And and it's a culture that we, we embrace. We've got to learn. We don't have time to make the same mistakes over again. We don't have time to make the mistakes that our, our buddies made on a different submarine. So You know there are many different ways that we do that, and I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Spear. He's the author of the High Velocity Edge, Uh, and Steve's a a MIT professor, big brain guy, and he wrote this book, The High Velocity Edge, and I read it in 2010 uh, at the end of my naval career, and I said, and he wrote chapter five all about the nuclear submarine force and how we learned really fast from all of our mistakes and even very minor mistakes. And so I reached out to him and I said, how did you learn all this? And he somehow, you
0: know, understood
1: this from the readings that he did academically. So I took him down on a submarine and and showed him like what we do to learn from every mistake. So we do the standard military stuff. We do the debrief. Of course, then we dig into root cause uh, analysis on some of the most minor things that most people would say, you know, it's pretty small. Nobody got hurt. Didn't cost us anything. Why are we wasting all this time? Uh, but we find it extremely beneficial to debrief, to dig in, to get root cause analysis on everything because at the end of that kind of discussion about what's the root cause is usually a human being and the human beings make mistakes and we have to build systems and processes and a culture where a human can make a mistake, but we can't let it lead to a major catastrophic event. And that's the difference between a high reliability organization and your, your average high risk operation, because, you know, we all know humans make mistakes. We know that's going to happen, so we put in place maybe a, a check and balance, a second checker, an oversight, something to help that person so that when they do make that error, it's a small error, it's correctable. Uh, so some things we do is, you know, every time I pulled into a port on a submarine, even Pearl Harbor, one of the easiest places to pull your submarine into. We hit every turn on time. We hadn't have any issues. We're going to gather around the chart for 15 minutes And we're going to walk through it what did you see what could have gone better what went well and if things went well let's mark it down what what did we do right this time that we maybe haven't done in the past and sometimes we learn new good things that we did but sometimes we'll say you know i missed that turn by three degrees and here's the reason why and let's work on getting better and it's not always to beat up people uh if you go look at the blue angels group i got a good friend uh, john gucci is his call sign but uh gucci talks about the blue angels And after every practice event, these are the best pilots the Navy has to offer. And they sit down and they debrief and they scrutinize every single maneuver. And that's the same kind of concept we try to do in submarines. We want to learn from every mistake. We don't have time to do them again. And we don't have time to learn, you know, a new mistake. So I don't know if that really helps, but that high velocity learning is is critical. And you can't, you know, too many of, you know, too many, unfortunately, of my clients tend to want to just move on. You know, had a little minor error. It was a near, you know, near mishap. Um, They don't want to dig into it because it's not fun. I mean, John, let's face it, sitting around a table and telling your boss you you screwed up is not a fun time, right? I mean, nobody likes doing that. It's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to be the bad guy and say, did you do this procedure or not? Did you do step two? And then the other person has to say, no, I skipped step two. And it's a hard conversation. You got to have those hard conversations. And you got to be willing to say, this ain't personal. All right. We just all want to get better because we're operating a pretty intense, high risk operation here. And everybody wants to go home at night or get the mission done and go home at the end of the deployment, whatever the case may be. So you got to embrace learning. You got to embrace taking that criticism Uh, and you got to look for opportunities to learn fast and move on after that.
0: So I think it's a it's an interesting culture we see right now because we are seeing more and more often teams are. You know, celebrating their successes, telling their successful war stories, but when something catastrophic happens or something bad happens, it's never debriefed. It's never talked about. I mean, you know, recently I've, you know, been involved with teams that have had pretty dramatic shootings that have led to officers being killed or whatever, and, and there is no sit down and no debrief. How do you teach an organization that the culture of debrief is absolutely
1: essential? Well, if we can get them to embrace the concept, we teach them something called the critique. And I don't know if this is unique to, uh, to the submarine force, but if something goes wrong within an hour, we have relieved all those operators with other qualified operators. We sit down and this is, you know, if you're in a submarine, there's nowhere you can go to hide, right? You can't, you can't go off shift, you're there. So we pull them into the wardroom, which is, you know, the officer's area. It's uncomfortable, it's stuffy, it's tight. And we sit down, within typically within an hour of the incident, and we have the logs, we have the procedures, we have the diagrams, and we have everybody who was involved. And we go through a timeline of the event. Okay, 1000, this happened, this turbine generator tripped, 1002, what did you do? I did this, I did that. We get the timeline of facts, and then we go through the procedure to make sure that it was per the procedure or not, and if it wasn't, why? We use the diagram, make sure we all are on the same page on how the equipment's supposed to operate. And then we just dig into what the decision-making points were, because there's always key decision-making points along that timeline. And if you don't get that timeline down, people can kind of, their memory starts to kind of go sideways and they forget. And if you don't do this right away, right after the incident, they also tend to forget. So we do this critique process and all we're trying to capture is the timeline And we don't even try to go for root causes. We're just trying to get the timeline of facts and kind of what the decision makers were thinking at the time and what they saw. And if there are any conflicts of what people saw or did, then we try to root that out the best we can. After that, we get those people on their way and the senior decision makers start thinking through, all right, what were the root causes and what's the corrective action? Sometimes it's, all right, we're gonna do a little training, get back in the saddle. Sometimes it's, holy crap, our procedure's jacked up. We got to submit a a change. We're going to do a temporary standing order on that procedure. So it can be a wide spectrum of reactions, but capturing that information right away, making sure it's not a blame game either, John, because too many people go in and say, well, the last guy that touched the valve screwed it up. Well, okay, let's time out. Let's take a look at what we, did we put that person in that situation? Was the procedure right? Was the training right? Was the equipment right? Whatever the case may be, that person is human. And if we set him up, before we go to blame somebody. Can people make mistakes? You betcha. Do we have to sometimes look at that person and say, you know, they made a bad decision and we'll deal with that separately from the system. But from the system standpoint, what can we do to make the system better to make sure somebody else, you know, doesn't make that same mistake?
0: Well, this is fantastic. How can our listeners get a hold of you or, you know, we'll link to your book in the show notes. And I'm also going to link to the high velocity edge book that you mentioned in the show notes, but how can our listeners find you and, and learn more about what you're doing?
1: Absolutely. Uh, LinkedIn, you know, we have a, we have a company page, uh, you know, high reliability group, pretty easy. I'm on there. Bob Koontz at LinkedIn, pretty easy to find. Um, And we'll
0: link to all that also. We'll put
1: some links and I'd be glad to take anybody's phone call Uh, I'm an old-school guy, uh, 312-859-9311. Give me a call. I'll talk to you. Um, But uh, we love helping people learn more about this and sharing what we've learned.
0: So, Bob, we finish every episode of Battle Proven Leadership with what I call the three questions. Uh, Three questions are a short answer. They are off the top of your head. What do you think? How do you feel? And they're guided towards helping other people learn more and be better leaders. The first of the three questions... What is your most important habit?
1: Wow, um, you know, I had an uncle who uh, told me when I was a young man that uh, you know you're basically going to improve by the people that you surround yourself with and the books you read. And so I've made it a habit of mine to try to read constantly, um, typically nonfiction. I'm I'll read a few classics now and then, but I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to learn history and uh, trying to learn um, all about this world. So I would say. Don't stop reading. Don't stop learning.
0: What is the most important thing for building an effective team?
1: Number one is trust, trust, trust. You have to build the trust and you can't ever violate that trust. The team has to know that you have their best interest at heart. And uh, if you, once you violate that trust, um, it's really hard to get back. So I focus on that.
0: What is the one thing that every leader needs to know
1: this may seem a little self-centered but i always say know yourself understand your strengths understand your weaknesses uh, as a young man i thought i knew everything and could do anything i was pretty you know gung-ho and it wasn't until i really started thinking about you know what are my strengths what are my weaknesses you know how can i fit into the team that's when i think you really start learning to be a better leader It's when you recognize that that uh, you have to know your strengths and weaknesses so get to know yourself Um, There's a variety of testing and all the psychological stuff. I'm I'm not a PhD, uh, but I've learned to understand how I work and how I work best with others and help others.
0: Bob, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. You taught me a lot.
1: Thanks, John, for having me. Appreciate it.